0: Turn with me in your scriptures to the book of John. John chapter 18. We will begin in 18.1 and we will read all the way through chapter 19, verse 16. Jesus has completed his talk with his disciples. That conversation and prayer he had with them, kind of the final teaching after the Last Supper. And he is, uh, the scene will shift now to his. His betrayal, his arrest, and his crucifixion. And so we will begin that today by looking to John chapter 18, verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, "'Who is it that you want?' "'Jesus of Nazareth,' they replied, "'I am He,' Jesus said, and and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, "'I am He,' they drew back and fell to the ground.'" Again, He asked them, Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am He, Jesus answered. If you are looking for Me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words He had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave Me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest, that year. Caiaphas was the, only, was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went to Jesus. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the girl on duty there and brought Peter in. "You are not one of the disciples? His disciples are you?" the girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, "I am not." It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around the fire they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him, still bound, to Caiaphas, the high priest. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, You are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, would we not have handed him over to you? Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priest who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now, my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. You are right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this, he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, hail, king of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted we have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Arabic, Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the 6th hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Let's pray. God, when the rains fall, it waters the grass, and the flowers grow, and food grows, and we are provided for it. In the same way, Your Word goes out and produces life. Lord, allow Your Word to produce life in us today. Amen. There are several eyewitness details that John gives us that the other Gospel writers do not. One of those is the name of Peter as the one who held the sword and attacked the servant. Another one is the actual name of the servant That is given to us here, Malchus, who we know from the other Gospels, Jesus healed his ear after Peter had struck him. But one other detail that shapes much of all of chapter 18 and all of chapter 19 is that little name of the valley that's so easy to to read over and to miss as we look in John 18 verse 1. When he had finished praising, Jesus left with His disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. For the Jewish readers of John's Gospel in the original writing, they would have heard Kidron Valley and they would have immediately thought of 2 Samuel 23, or at least what we know of as 2 Samuel 23, where David is being pursued by Absalom after Absalom has betrayed David and taken the throne after the people of Israel have betrayed David and backed Absalom we're told as, as David is leaving Jerusalem, he passes across the Kidron stream which ran through the Kidron Valley. And so, in the, the original readers of this document would have looked at that and they would have looked for signs of betrayal. And so today we will look at four betrayals that, Pete, that Jesus undergoes. One, the, betray, the betrayal at the hand of Judas. The next, the betrayal at the the hand of the Jewish leaders. The betrayal at the hands of Pilate. And then ultimately, the betrayal by Peter. So first, let's look at Judas' betrayal. Judas brings a detachment of soldiers. Judas has left that teaching session after the Last Supper. Jesus had identified him as the one who would betray him. And Jesus had told him, go do what you are going to do and do it quickly. Judas knew things about Jesus. He knew his routines and he knew where Jesus would go when he was in Jerusalem, where he would go to retreats, to pray, and to rest. And he knew that Jesus would end up in this olive grove or in this garden uh, there on the other side of the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. And so he knew that if he was going to have Jesus arrested, if he was going to put his plan into motion, he knew where to find Jesus in a place where there would be as few witnesses as possible. Remember, just a week before that, we celebrate today Palm Sunday. Jesus has entered Jerusalem proclaimed as King, proclaimed as Messiah, proclaimed as the One who people thought would bring uh, relief from the military oppression of the, Rome, the Romans and reestablish the Kingdom of Israel. And so to arrest Jesus publicly would have incited a riot which would have been bad for the religious leaders. And so Judas, knowing this, brought the temple guards and a detachment of Roman soldiers to the garden so that they might arrest Jesus in the most peaceful way possible. Well, these soldiers get there. And Jesus, knowing all things that are going to happen, and and John gives us an overview of God's sovereignty in everything that happens to Jesus. Jesus goes out from the olive grove and He meets those who are going to arrest Him. And He says, who are you looking for? And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, well, that's me. And the temple guards kind of fall back. Now, there's two reasons for this. One is a very pragmatic reason. If you were on your way to arrest somebody that you are afraid of being somebody who is going to lead a revolt or a rebellion, and they actually come out and greet you on your way, it might take you back a little bit, wouldn't it? It might scare you that maybe, wait a minute, who else is hiding in the dark? Because it's awful dark here and if He's going to meet us face to face, what's getting ready to happen to us? But the other reason is these temple guards had tried to arrest Jesus once before. The religious leaders had sent them to the temple courts when He proclaimed those words, I am He, those words that echo the name of God as translated into the Greek in the Greek Old Testament that name of God, Yahweh, or I Am, and they hear this man proclaim to them again, I am He, Ego me the Greek word for I Am. And there's a little bit of a, a fear involved, there's a little bit of this idea that, oh my, my goodness, we're arresting this guy who claims to be the Messiah, who claims to be God Himself. Well. If the temple guards are scared, the Roman guards are not. They've been trained for any type of situation and they take control of the situation and they arrest Jesus. They bind him and they take him to the religious leaders. And we see next that not only has Jesus been betrayed by Judas in this, but he will be betrayed by his people. They take Judas, or they take Jesus, excuse me, to the high priest. Now we have two men in this account called the high priest one is a man named Annas and one is the son-in-law of Annas Caiaphas now we know from Jewish law that there can only be one high priest at a time so we do need to work this out Annas was high priest up until about three or four years before Jesus' ministry began and he was deposed by Pilate's predecessor as the prefect of um, Judea however in the Jewish mind, you, once you were a high priest, you were a high priest for life. Very much like our Supreme Court justices are high priest for life. Or very much, actually probably more accurately, um, what do we call George Bush if we were to meet him face to face? Would we call him Mr. Bush or would we call him President Bush? Probably President Bush, wouldn't we? Or same thing with Clinton or, or any of the other presidents that may still be alive at this point. It was the same thing there. Annas would still be called the high priest. So Jesus is probably taken to Annas first and then Caiaphas. But Jesus is interviewed by Annas and Annas asks Jesus about these two things. He says, tell me about your disciples and tell me about your teachings. He wants to know about His disciples because He wants to know how many people do we need to prepare for that are going to come and try to break you out of jail to get you out of this situation. Jesus ignores that part of the question and he answers, what did I teach? He says, this is what I taught. I taught it openly to the world and whatever I taught to my disciples was the same thing I taught openly to the world, but maybe just a little bit more expanded. So if you want to know what I teach, why don't you follow the rules of trial court in Israel and go get witnesses and ask them? Because somebody who was accused of a crime in Israel did not have to testify against themselves. Witnesses were to be called and witnesses were to testify according to what he taught. Annas will have, actually one of, one of the other officials that is there will have none of this, so he smacks Jesus. Once again, if you are arrested in Jewish trial law, you are not to be struck. You are to be treated well. You are to be treated... Almost innocent until proven guilty like we are here in America. And But this man strikes him and Jesus asks once again, what did I do to deserve to be struck? I did not disrespect Annas. I did not disrespect any of this situation. Jesus, we see at the cross that He will turn the other cheek, but He still stands for truth. Turning the other cheek and not standing for truth according to... Uh, D.A. Carson is the terrorized cowardice of the wimp. But turning the cheek doesn't mean that we don't call out things that are wrong. It means that we do accept the repercussions for being unjustly attacked for standing for the truth. So Jesus is betrayed by His people in this unfair trial that even proceeds as we find in in the other Gospels, proceeds through false testimony and false witness. But that wasn't the final betrayal of the people of God against Jesus. Look to the end of the account, at the end of chapter 9, or near the middle there of chapter 19, as Pilate has brought Jesus out after three times declaring that he was innocent and not deserving of death. In a scene reminiscent of them going to Samuel at the beginning of 1 Samuel and saying, "We want a king like the other nations around us." When Pilate says, here is your king, shall I crucify him? They say, we have no king but Caesar. They deny God's kingship over them. They betray the messianic hope of the age to come that a king will sit upon the throne of David and rule God's people in glory and power and majesty forever. They deny everything that they have stood for for so many centuries. They have denied everything that God has told them since the foundation of the nation of Israel in Abraham and in Moses. We have no king except a human king. And in effect, what they're saying is we have no God. We have nobody to follow. We only follow Caesar. And we want nothing to do with this man. Jesus has been betrayed by Judas. Jesus has been betrayed by His people. But Jesus is also betrayed by the world. And we see this in Pilate. After His trial before the Sanhedrin, after He is wrongly convicted of this religious crime, the religious leaders bring Him to Pilate and they they wrap His religious crime in political language. And they tell Pilate, this man claims to be a king. He's inciting a rebellion he deserves to die now during this time one of the things that Rome took away they left a lot of freedoms they left a lot of things in place that the Israelites had as far as ruling as far as the religious laws but one of the things that Rome took away from the Israelites was capital punishment if somebody was going to die for a capital crime they had to go through the Roman authorities With the stoning of Stephen in Acts 7, the religious leaders probably broke that law and there might have been repercussions for it. There was kind of a mob mentality in this. But in this instance with Jesus, they crossed all their T's and dotted all their I's to make sure that that they were following the rules and everything that they did with Jesus. So they took Him to Pilate. And Pilate interviews Jesus and he says, hey, I, I hear you're the king. People tell me that you're the king. And uh, Jesus says, "Well, did you hear that from somebody else, or are you really curious? Are you truly, truly seeking to know more about my kingdom, or are you just repeating something somebody else has told you?" And Peter, or excuse me, Pilate. Pilate was not a good guy. Up until the 1960s, people did not believe Pilate existed because there was no evidence for him. But in the 1960s, a stone was found in Caesarea that named him prefect of Judea during this time. Um, Early in his rule as prefect of Judea, Pilate hung banners that said to the effect, uh, Caesar is God, or worship no God but Caesar. He hung these banners very close to the temple grounds. And the Israelites revolted. And uh, Pilate kind of wormed his way out of that revolt. Pilate would either manipulate his way out of difficult circumstances or he would react very violently to difficult circumstances. So you never knew where you stood with Pilate. And I think he did that intentionally to keep people off base because if enough information gets back to Caesar that Pilate is allowing riots and revolts and kings to be proclaimed in Jerusalem, Caesar will come and remove him from his position. And Pilate cared more about his power than he did about justice, than he did about the people of Israel. And so Pilate looks at Jesus and says, you know what? I really don't care anything about you. I'm just trying to keep peace here. And you're either going to answer me or you're not. I'm gonna, I can make life very hard upon you or I can make very life, life very easy for you. And Jesus says, you're right. Okay. Not because He's capitulating to this petty ruler but because he is going to proclaim truth once again. He said, yes, I am a king, but my kingdom's not an earthly kingdom. He said, if it was, there would have been a group of men that would have come with me and you would not have arrested me. They would have fought to keep me and to break me out of jail, but talk to your soldiers because when one of my men tried to do that, I stopped him and healed one of the soldiers. He says, but yes, I am a king, but my kingdom is not warring against military might, but against unbelief. Jesus says, see, my followers are marked by truth. My followers are marked by embracing the revelation of God's self-disclosure in myself. The word made flesh." He said, so if you want to see my followers, look to those who follow truth. Look to those who embrace truth. And then Pilate just really dismisses Jesus. He says, yeah, whatever, what is truth? Larry Taunton wrote a book about Christopher Hitchens, one of the most vocal atheists of the 20th and early 21st centuries. And he said there was more to Christopher Hitchens. Behind the scenes, he was very open to talking about religion. He was very open to talking about Jesus. And he was very open to the Gospel. But he said there was a point in Hitchens' life where the Gospel started to kind of pry at his heart. But he knew enough about Scriptures that he had to count the cost. And Hitchens, from what we can tell by the end of his life, was not willing to pay the cost to embrace the Gospel. It's the same thing we have here with Pilate. Jesus' message to him through the trial is probably needling under Pilate's skin. And he says, what is truth? And he rejects Jesus. And he takes him out and he says, I find nothing to hold him accountable for. Let me give you... I will release either him or Barabbas, somebody who had actually entered into rebellion against Pilate. And this goes on a couple times and we know that Pilate has Jesus beat and he brings Jesus back out again and the Jews say what they do, we have no king but Caesar. And Pilate looks at Jesus. He says, I know you're an innocent man, but I'm going to have you crucified anyway to keep the peace. And so Pilate betrays Jesus. The world betrays Jesus too to hold on to their own powers, We would expect the religious leaders to betray Jesus, would we not? They were trying to protect their own power. They were trying to protect their own own reputation. We would expect Pilate to do that because Pilate's trying to protect his power. He's trying to protect his place there in in Judea. We would expect Judas to do it because he was trying to get power more than likely as well. He was a thief, he was a liar. Let's add betrayal to it. But we don't expect the next betrayal. Jesus or Peter has told Jesus time and time again, I will stand behind, I will stand next to you to the end. You can count me, I will die the same death you die. I will walk to the gates of hell with you. And during Jesus' trial, we flip back and forth between the scene of Jesus being interrogated. And Peter being interrogated. And we see Jesus being faithful to the truth in His interrogation. We see Peter fail miserably in His. Aren't you one of His disciples also by the girl at the gate? No, not me. One of the men standing around the charcoal fire being warmed. Hey, you've been with Jesus before, haven't you? You follow Him around, don't you? Nope, Nope, got me confused with somebody else. Once again, he's asked, we're told by Malchus' cousin or Malchus' relative, I think you're the one that's been with him. And the other Gospel says with cursing and swearing and yelling and screaming, Peter says, not me! And the rooster crows. And Peter is crushed by the weight of his betrayal. Peter is crushed because it surprised him. He truly intended to follow Jesus to the end, and he was surprised by the fact that he was just as frail and broken as Judas. Now we know the end of the story, because we have read through John before, and we will look at the end of the story in a couple of weeks, but the difference, one of the difference was between Peter and Judas. Peter ran to the law for comfort. Peter ran, or excuse me, Judas ran to the law for absolution. Judas ran to the law for comfort in the midst of his sin, and the law failed. Peter ran to the tomb on Easter morning. You ever wonder why he beat John there? You think maybe he wanted a second chance to set things right and to seek at the feet of the Savior forgiveness? and comfort in the midst of his sin. We're told that sermons to begin well have to grab attention with a great story within eight seconds. And we're told that for sermons to really stick for a while, well, it has to have application. The temptation is to say, don't betray Jesus. That's the application today. Go well, be warm, be fed, and prosper. Do any of us intend to betray Jesus? But we do, right? The true application of the text is far more difficult than me just telling you don't betray Jesus. If you've noticed, I've skipped over a few things. He said these things so that His words might be fulfilled. I lost none of them. Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? A couple other times throughout this passage, he said these things, verse 32, this happened so that the words Jesus had spoken indicating the kind of death He was going to die would be fulfilled. Nothing surprised Jesus in this. Nothing surprised God in this. There was no part of the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus that God went, oh goodness, I've got to change my plan. I didn't see that coming. All of this happened because God's Word had to be fulfilled. God is sovereign over everything. And yes, the Scripture teaches that God is sovereign. Scripture teaches that we are responsible for our choices. Both of those things go hand in hand. We don't quite get it. We don't quite understand it. But both of those things are true at the same time. So Pilate and the religious leaders will be judged for what they did to Jesus. On an earthly realm, Pilate within four years lost his position as prefect. Trying to keep the peace, he lost his position. Within 40 years, 30 to 40 years, Jerusalem will be destroyed, and everything the religious leaders thought they had would be taken from them by force. God is sovereign over all things. Peter, Jesus tells Peter, Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Don't stop this process. I'm in control of it. And this has been in place since Genesis 3 and before. I'm using everything that will happen to me to take judgment and betrayal upon myself so that I might offer You grace. So that I might offer You forgiveness. Each and every one of us has been betrayed in our life. And it hurts. I don't have to tell you a story about betrayal. If I was just quiet for a few seconds, you'd all think of one instantly like that. God is sovereign over that. And what this passage is calling us to do today is to rest and to trust in the sovereignty of God over everything that happens to us in our life. Because if God can use the betrayal of the Son of Man, the Messiah, to affect our salvation, do you think He can't find glory in your betrayals as well? The ones against you and the ones that you do against others? Seek forgiveness at the cross. Seek forgiveness at the feet of Jesus. And offer forgiveness and grace when you're betrayed as well. And understand that God is sovereign and is bringing His glory through all things. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, we thank You that the things that seem chaotic, the things that seem evil to us, You are working for Your glory. And You are sovereign over them as well. Help us to rest and trust in Your sovereignty so that we might one day stand and see Your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.